Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter begins the passage today, and we'll begin today, by focusing on, on a truth. He gives us one thing that's true and then four things to do. So we start with what is true. He says, here's what's true. The end of all things is at hand. Now, this is the sort of phrase that you, you kind of expect to see on a, on a guy, a crazy guy, wearing a sandwich board, walking on the sidewalk, or holding a picket sign, or something out of movies or cartoons. And yet here it is, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The end is near. So what does Peter say? What does, what does Peter mean when he says this? Because uh, we can, you know, we, we have that, that uh, crazy-haired guy with a sandwich board picture in our mind or that person who gets on radio and says the end of the world is coming on such and such a date. We think when someone says the end is near that they mean we've picked a date, whether it's two weeks or a year in the future, and we know when that's going to happen, and so get ready for that because we know it's, it's near. It's, it's a week away. It's a month away. And if that's what's in our heads, then we get kind of confused when we read this passage because Peter wrote this like 2,000 years ago. So you'd be tempted to say, well, Peter obviously didn't know what he was talking about. He thought the end was near, and here we are 2,000 years later. It still hasn't come. He must be wrong. Well, Peter wasn't saying it in the same way that we say it. What you have to understand is that Peter is speaking here, like many biblical writers, in a big-picture sense. He's saying when you survey all of the history of the world and biblical history, every major event that needs to happen before Jesus can return by the time Peter's writing this, had happened. He's saying, you look, God created the world, we fell into sin, God chose Abraham and created the nation of Israel, and, and they did their thing, and then Jesus showed up as the culmination of that storyline, and he died on the cross for sins, he rose from the dead. Then uh, a little while later, the Holy Spirit was poured out in the church, the gospel was exploding around the known world. Peter's like, look around. There's nothing we're waiting for anymore. All the major events in the history of redemption have happened all that's left is for Jesus to come back. Saying the end is near, it's imminent. Jesus could come back at any moment. He's not setting a particular date, but he's just saying, hey, it could be right now. It could be tomorrow. It could be 100 years from now. But it's near. It's imminent. Now, why would Peter bother to say something like that? I think what he's doing for us is he's He's kind of acting the role in our lives of, of a near-death experience or a sudden illness that comes out of nowhere. He, he, he's, he's playing the role of the person who comes in and, and just brings sudden clarity and perspective into our lives. I mean, you know how that happens when, when, when you do have like a near-death experience or someone you know gets, gets sick or you get suddenly sick and all of a sudden you, you were worried about your job or you were worried about how this one person insulted you or you were jealous that you didn't have this thing that another person had and all of a sudden this perspective comes into your life and you realize all that stuff is meaningless. All that stuff that was bothering you, all that stuff that you were consumed about, it doesn't matter. See, when you're reminded, in whatever way it happens, that the end is near, that there is eternity that hangs in the balance, all of a sudden you, you, you get a startling clarity 
as to what really matters. And, and although the words are, are different depending on who you talk to when, when they have those experiences, the main message is always the same. That when people are confronted with that truth and they realize what really matters, it's always some variation of, of, of love. It, it, you know, it's, it's if people didn't have good relationships with others, they would say something like, I wish I had invested more time in my children. I wish I had loved people more. I wish I had, or if they had, you know, didn't, didn't invest their lives in following God, I wish that I had spent more time getting to know God and being ready to meet him. Uh, or if people have had good relationships with their families, at those times where things get put in perspective, what do they want? Do they want to, to examine their bank accounts? No, they want to have their families around them. Right? You want to have the people that you've invested your lives in, the relationships, the love that you've invested in and received in return. See, when, when things get put in perspective, when someone reminds you that the end is near, whether of your life or the world, you're reminded that what really matters is love. And what we ought to be spending our time in and our effort in while we're still here on this earth is love. And I think that's where Peter's going in the passage this morning. He's starting off with this, with this shot in the arm saying, hey, remember, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, invest yourself in what really matters. And he gives us four practical things today, what to do. The first one comes in verse 7, and it's to pray. Okay? Because the end of all things is near, Peter says, the first thing that you should do is pray. Verse 7 says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, I want to be careful here because you've got to remember um, that we're jumping into the end of the book. You know, a lot of you have been with me through this whole, uh, this whole series, but we're, we're jumping in here right at chapter 4. Uh, towards the end of this book, Peter's assuming already that he's writing to people who have a relationship with God. He's, he's already assuming that. So you're not going to get him saying here, first of all, get right with God and then pray. Uh, but for all of us who are just kind of jumping in uh, into this passage, we need to remember that Peter is writing to people who have already put their faith in Jesus. He's assuming that there's a relationship in place. Back in chapter 1, uh, you know, Peter says, chapter 1, verse 3 uh, this is who he's writing to, people who've been born again. He says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying, I'm, I'm writing to Christians here, people who have been born again. Later on in the book, he explains how that happens in chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, you need to have a relationship with God. The way that you get that is by uh, putting your faith in Jesus. Jesus, it says, bore our sins in his body on the tree. So all that we did wrong got placed on him. All of his righteousness gets placed on us. If we put our faith in him, our wounds are healed. He takes the penalty for us. He says again in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, this is the gospel. Peter's explained it already, and I want to remind you that this is in view, because I don't need to start thinking with the rest of the sermon, oh, this is how I get right with God. Pastors tell me this is what I have to do. The, end's in, the end is near, so I better start praying, and I better start loving, and I better start serving, and if I do enough of those things, then I'll be ready for the end because God's going to like me because I've prayed and I've loved and I've served. No. 
Peter's already made it very clear, and I hope I'm making it clear for you right now, that if you're going to be ready for the end, then you need to first be born again. You get born again by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, and when you do that, you get brought into a relationship with God. Now, if you understand that, you understand why Peter says, therefore, pray. You've been brought into a relationship with God. This, this first love relationship he's focusing on is the relationship that you have with God. He's saying you're going to spend eternity with the Lord. That's the glorious and good news of the gospel. You've been reconciled to God. You're going to spend eternity with him. So don't make the first time that you meet him face to face be the first time that you've ever really talked to him. You know, you're going to spend eternity with the Lord. That relationship that you've got with him is what really matters. So spend your time now investing in developing and growing that relationship. Marriage counselors will tell you uh, that if you really want to help your marriage to grow, uh, that, that you can just a very simple thing that you can do is that you could spend a few minutes every morning and a few minutes every evening talking with your spouse. It's rocket science. It's amazing. Spend a few minutes every morning uh, just connecting with your spouse, talking about your day, what's maybe one thing that's on your heart for the day that you're kind of concerned about. Just get on the same page, right? And then at the end of the day, reconnect again, talk about how your day went, how things are going. Just spend some time face-to-face with your spouse, a couple minutes in the morning, a couple minutes in the evening, and that, could, that can really, I mean, people say that's one of the things that divorce proofs, proofs your marriage. That simple thing, spending time together. Now, I hope that for you, your relationship with God is at least as important as the relationship with your spouse, if you have one. I mean, th- this relationship that we're talking about, this heart of the gospel, is we've been reconciled to God. Though we don't see him, we love him, and we should be loving him more than we love that face-to-face spouse that we have, <laughs> that we walk with every day. And so if you are willing to invest a couple minutes every day to, to talk with your spouse and connect and grow that relationship... We should be willing as well to invest a couple minutes every day, I mean at least, in developing and growing that relationship of love with God. Spend a few minutes every morning. Just read a psalm from your Bible. Tell the Lord what you have going on that day, the things that you're concerned about. Just give it to him. At the end of the day, before you go to bed, spend a few minutes thanking God for the ways in which he brought you through the day, the things that he answered, those prayers that you had, the concerns in the morning, how he came through for you. Concerns that you still have, things that you might be worrying about that are keeping you from going to sleep. Just connect with the Lord. Because the end of all things is at hand. One day sooner or a little bit later, we're going to meet the Lord face to face. We're going to spend eternity with him. We might as well start developing that relationship with him now. The next thing Peter moves on to, what to do, comes in verse 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And the word I use for this in the outline is what we need to do is we need to smother sin. Uh, I, I, I didn't use the word cover. I know that's in all of our translations because, because I think it's too easy for us to read that where it says love covers a multitude of sins and to think love covers up over a multitude of sins. Love covers up for a multitude of sins. Uh, and, and we need to remember, again, having read the whole book of First Peter, that that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that when somebody sins, you cover it up and pretend like it didn't happen. That's love. Love's pretending like sin doesn't happen. No, no, no. You remember chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says to these Christians, 
Put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. He loves these people he's writing to, but he doesn't pretend they don't have sin. He doesn't pretend there's nothing wrong. He's not covering up their sin, saying, you guys are fine. No, he's saying, there is sin, and you guys need to correct that because I love you. It's just like if you've got a child, you've got a child that's, that's lying. If you love that child, you don't cover up for that child and, and say, um, you know, it's, it's fine that you're lying. I mean, we're not even going to call it lying. You know, just being a kid, and you, 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 you cover up for them. When they get in trouble, you, you, you take the blame for them. That's not love. Love is, is loving your child enough to say, that's a destructive behavior. I'm going to teach you not to lie. I'm going to discipline you for lying so that you grow up to be a truth-telling, righteous adult. Or in the same way, if, if in, in a church, in, in our church, if we have a, a member who were, um, this is a complete hypothetical, so don't start looking around. Um, if we were to have a member who was uh, addicted to gambling, you know, and, and he were to, to be going to the riverboat time after time and taking his whole family into debt, and we as the elders would find out about this, it wouldn't be loving for us to say, oh, it's, not, it's fine. It's not really a problem. Let's all just pretend like everything's okay. No, love would be to go to him and say, you're destroying your family, you're addicted to gambling, you're, 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 um, you're engaging in destructive behavior. You need to stop. Okay? That's love. So I don't want you to read here when First Peter is saying, love covers a multitude of sins and say, love means that we pretend like no one ever does anything wrong. Love means like we cover up sin and it never gets talked about. No, love means that you smother sin. You, you cover up sin like a, like a blanket covers up a campfire or like a glass jar covers up a candle. I mean, you know what happens when you do that? When you, when you cover up a candle with a glass jar, the candle goes out because it's been smothered by the jar because the fuel that enabled it to continue got used up. See, Peter's just saying again the same thing he said in chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. He's saying when you get sinned against, what love does is love smothers sin. Sure, you acknowledge that you were sinned against, you acknowledge that somebody reviled you, but you don't respond with reviling. You don't pour gasoline on the fire and cause it to flame up into this huge uh, conflagration of sin. You smother it. You respond with grace. You respond with blessing. You respond with praying for those who sin against you. And you know what happens? Sin dies. It gets extinguished. When you have that sort of atmosphere of grace and love, you can acknowledge sin, but you cover it, you smother it with the love that you show for one another. See, Peter's saying the end is near. We need to love one another, not wasting our time throwing fuel on the fire and creating sin um, problems, creating just fueling fire so that sin dominates all of our attention, all of our time, when all of a sudden Jesus shows up and it's like, what have you been doing? Oh, we've been infighting, we've been gossiping, we've been slandering, we've been backbiting. It's like the end is near. Smother sin with love. Thirdly, Peter gets very practical in verse 9. And he says, show cheerful hospitality. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This hospitality, this is a, a really interesting Greek word because it's just a compound word, uh, two words for stranger and love. So hospitality is, is stranger love or loving strangers. Uh, here, the... the 
the focus, he says, show hospitality to one another. The focus seems to be, he's emphasizing, within the church, within Christians especially, show hospitality to one another. Um, but certainly there's biblical precedent for applying that to people outside of the church as well, but especially for those within the church. The hospitality he's talking about in this time uh, probably would have been uh, things that flew out, flow, flowed out of the fact that there were no good inns or nice restaurants in, in peop- places and in, in towns in that time. So if a traveling uh, Christian were, were visiting one of these cities and, and he came in, well, where would he stay? Well, he should be offered a place to stay among the Christians. They should say, you're a stranger, and yet we love you because you're our brother, and so why don't you come? Why don't you stay in our house? We'll provide a meal for you. We'll provide a place for you to stay. Uh, Similarly, they didn't have church buildings like we do, so where would they meet? Well, people would open their homes, uh, much like the the folks in in Syria that we prayed for earlier today. We'd meet in homes, and people would open up their homes, and other people would come in, and you would worship there together, and you would fellowship together. Now, there's some similarities with those situations that we have today and and also some differences, but we have plenty of opportunities to show hospitality um, in in similar or or different ways. To start with the ones that are similar, we we still have need to open our homes to one another. Uh, Now, we, you know, when we go traveling, we don't call the local church and say, hey, I'm going to be in Virginia this week. Uh, Do you have anybody where I could stay? No, because we have hotels. We can use hotels. That's fine. We can eat at restaurants. But we still have opportunities to open our homes to one another, don't we? I mean, it's still very powerful to invite someone that you kind of know as an acquaintance into your house to share a meal or for a cookout. If you do that, you're building the bonds of love with one another. We have opportunities to meet in people's homes for Bible studies. Or when visiting missionaries come, they can stay at our house or they can have a meal with you. Sometimes... Even now, in our culture, you have folks that are in need. Something just falls apart, and for a week or two, they need a place to stay. And we have the chance, as Christians, to demonstrate hospitality and love strangers and welcome into our home. Uh, There's some differences as well. Now we have organizations that exist. In addition to inns, we have uh, places that, like the Peoria Rescue Mission or the Southside Mission or the Heart House in Eureka, Places where people are dedicated to providing shelter for those who are in need. And so one way that we can provide hospitality is by supporting those organizations, which is a church we do. We can also, like we're doing in the next couple of weeks, collect food, for example, for the Metamora Food Pantry. That's a practical, real-world application of verse 9, showing hospitality to strangers that we may even know in our own communities and providing food for them to eat. See, Peter says the end is near, so don't waste your time being self-centered, creating a comfortable cocoon for yourself, uh, hiding away from the needs of others. No, invest yourself in love. You're going to be spending eternity loving God and loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, so you should start now. You're not going to get to take your man cave with you into heaven. We should share our houses and our lives with others. Fourth, Peter says in verses 10 through 12, because the end is near, we should spend God's grace on others. Verse 10, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Now here Peter begins by reminding us of, of an important truth, and that's that every Christian has received grace. Every Christian has received grace from God. First, in the cross of Jesus, we receive the grace of salvation, forgiveness for our sins, but also we've received the grace of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside of it. So you, if you're a Christian here today, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, empowering you for acts of service. Here Peter talks about two broad categories. Verse 11, he says, whoever speaks and whoever serves. Um, you'll find other lists of spiritual gifts throughout the Bible. They're not exhaustive. Um, really, you can just think about spiritual gifts in, in this way. God has created you a certain way. He's, he's, he's made you the way that you are with the passions and the talents and the abilities and the training and the resources. And he's made you that way for a purpose, whether you're speaking or you're serving or whatever you're doing, that you would use those gifts for his glory. Uh, if you don't believe that you have been gifted in any way, I encourage you to do this exercise when you get home. Take out a sheet of paper and begin to write down on that sheet of paper everything that you have. If you have kids, I encourage you to have them be a part of this process because they'll point out, well, you have, you have uh, paper clips too, and you have socks, and you have toothbrushes. And, you know, so write it all down. Everything from paper clips to your car to your house to your uh, education to uh, your passion for your hobbies to uh, whatever it is that you got, just write it out. So write small, uh, and when you fill up the piece of paper, just stop because you'll be able to go forever if you put your mind to it. And then once you write those things down, ask the question, why? Why do I have all of this? Why has God given me all of this? The big answer is what he says here in, in, in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12. You've been given this to glorify God by serving others. God has given you this grace that you might spend it on other people. I, just, I love that word, that we're stewards. We're stewards of God's grace. Because stewards aren't owners. Stewards aren't owners. Stewards aren't people who have resources and can do whatever they want with them for themselves. Stewards are people who have responsibility. We, we serve under the owner. All the things that we have, the vast resources, that sheet of paper and more that we could fill up with everything we've got, it's not ours. It's God's. And so we get to use that to further his kingdom and to advance his glory and to serve other people. You know, the houses that we have are not for our comfort, not for our security. They're for hospitality. Uh, the resources that we have are not for our uh, entertainment. They're for generosity. You know, everything that we've got that's uniquely you, God made you like that, not so you could advance yourself in the, in the, in the working world or so that other people would think much of you, but that you would be able to use those gifts to glorify God and serve others. So we're stewards, not owners. And we're stewards of a wealthy, wealthy owner. Uh, I think sometimes we can confuse stewardship with, with being a banker, maybe. We think, what's, what's a bank's responsibility? Well, it's when, when a wealthy person puts money in the bank, it's your responsibility to make sure that you don't lose any and that they get it all back when they ask for it. But we're not bankers, we're stewards. We're stewards of like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates combined. Our job is to spend. Our job is to spend lavishly 
the resources that God has given us. I mean, I, I love that in verse 11. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Is God going to run out of energy to fuel you for mission? Is God going to run out? Are you going to be able to outserve God? Are you going to be able to, to use your gifts to such an extent that God's like, oh, I'm out of energy, I can't supply that one anymore? No, you're serving the God with infinite resources. You're a steward of the wealthiest man in the world, and his one mandate to you is to spend it. To spend it. To spend God's grace on other people. Don't sit around and think, oh, but I just don't have anything I can do. My house is, is dingy and small, and I can't cook. Great! Because when you open up your dingy, dirty house and you serve your burnt, poorly prepared food and, and, and the people that you interact with just experience the love from you and they say, this is the most amazing time of fellowship I've ever had, you say, well, it must be God because it wasn't the atmosphere. It wasn't my ability to be a hostess or to be a host. You know, that's how it works. When you say, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know how I can step out in faith and, 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 and engage a person in conversation hoping to share the gospel with them. I don't know how I can invite someone into my home. I don't know how I can you know, to dare to take responsibility for serving in the nursery. I don't know how I can do those things. I just don't have the skills or the gifts. God says, guess what? I'm supplying that. I just want you to try. I want you to spend. I want you to, to take that grace that I've given you, to step out in faith and to try to do something with it. And guess what? There's plenty more where that came from. And when you do it in your weakness, God gets glorified because it's his strength that we're serving in. I really do want you to write down when you get home, to do that exercise. Write down the things that you can think of that God has blessed you with and, and evaluate that and think, oh, what can I do? What can I try? God's given me all this grace, all this blessing. How can I begin to serve in that strength that he supplies? I encourage you to do that. I think that would be helpful. And if you write down on that sheet of paper and you think, I don't know, okay, come talk to me. Let, me. let me look at the sheet of paper. Let me help you work through that and figure out what you can do to glorify God, to take steps of service and faith. See, brothers and sisters, we only have a short time left on earth. Um, you know, whether or not Jesus comes back tomorrow or you get hit by a car on the way leaving church today, the end is near. And as Christians, we rejoice in that. You know, wh whether Jesus comes back right now or I get hit by a car on the way home, I'm rejoicing, okay? That's what the gospel tells us, that no matter what, when, when, we, when this life ends, we get promoted. <laughs> we get to be with God. We get to fellowship in love with him and fellow believers forever. That's the goal of our lives, and so let that perspective remind you that we should invest our lives now in those very same things. I hope we don't get hit by cars on the way home today, okay? I hope that we have plenty of time to, to begin to invest in developing love relationships and serving one another. You know, I, I want us to go out from here and to pray. I want us to be active in smothering sin with our love and showing hospitality to others and, um, and, and, and spending God's grace to minister to others and give God's glory. I want us to learn how to love, right? Because that is what is really important. Let's pray, and then let's celebrate that love that God has shown us in communion. Father, thank you for your love for us. Um, we grasp a 
a fingernail's worth of the amount of love that you've shown us, and it still blows us away. We're grateful for the cross. We're grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, empowering us to serve and love others. We're grateful for the love we experience from others as they smother our sin and forgive us for our faults and create a, 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 a grace-filled environment where, where righteousness flourishes and sin expires. We're grateful for prayer and for the opportunity to rest in you and take all of our concerns to you and be encouraged and edified by you as we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. Lord, as we take communion now, would you nourish us, remind us of your love for us, and empower us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.